0: Hello
2: and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast. I say your podcast, it's actually um, Laura, Adam and my podcast, but um, you can kid yourselves if you want. Uh, Your podcast dedicated to all things cycling and walking in the UK and beyond, uh, which we claim every week. I hope it's true. I hope someone out there is listening. Uh, My name is Ned Bolting.
3: I'm Laura Laker.
4: And I'm Adam Tranter.
2: Now, um, in this episode, we do have a guest who's going to be joining us uh, fairly shortly. Um, and that is Katie Pennick, who is from the uh, Transport for All organisation, and we're going to be talking about accessibility. Uh, for disabled people, amongst other things with Katie, because she's done some excellent uh, research into that, as have her organisation. So that's still to come, uh, Laura and Adam. But before then, before Katie joins us, there one or two bits of news, aren't there, um, of kind of relevance, well, really, to stuff we've been talking about now for the past year. Um, some interesting research, Adam, which has uh, which has emerged courtesy of Professor, as I now understand she is, uh, Rachel, Rachel Aldred.
4: Yeah, that's that's right. Um, there's a, a new study out that says that low traffic schemes uh, benefit the most deprived Londoners, uh, according to the to, to the really quite in depth uh, research um, here. So it examined around 400 filters created uh, in London over the last year, and of course a lot of the. Um, uh, a lot of the discussion from people who are opposed to LTNs is that they uh, tend to shunt vehicles from richer residential areas onto roads lived in by more deprived people Um, and that Doesn't seem to be the case. It's been using this data modeling to compare streets, including occupants' age, ethnicity, disability, employment, car ownership, um, and the government's own index of multiple uh, deprivation. And so they're able to work down to micro areas of around 300 um residents and, and people without cars uh, were more likely to live in an, in, uh, in an LTN uh, and black asian and minority ethnic uh, londoners were slightly more likely um to live in LTNs uh, than white residents although this did vary by ethnicity with asian people slightly less to do so so yeah the, this is this is really interesting stuff and it's it's kind of caused like as you would expect a a, a, a debate, um, on, uh, on, on the data. And, and really this is quite, uh, quite detailed stuff. And it, it, it reminds me of this thing we keep coming back to is the original kind of comment was show us the data, show us the data. And now it's no, not that data. That data is wrong. Um, from, from the opponents. And, and, and that seems a little unfair because this is really, really in depth stuff from a, from a, a leading professional.
2: Um, the data from my reading of it, Laura, did, did seem to suggest that, um, and I think Adam kind of almost alluded to it there, that whilst uh, it's incredibly positive in certain boroughs and certain areas, it is actually, because these um, schemes are put in, under the auspices of each individual uh, borough council in in um, in London, of which there are many different mm. types and many full stop, um, it's a bit different from borough to borough, isn't it? So, um, and quite ma- quite markedly so in in some respects. I yeah. mean, certain boroughs have treated LTNs in in fundamentally differing ways, and it's had a, a differing outcome. Mm-hmm. Is that right?
3: Yeah. So um, you've got Hackney, which is probably the most ambitious borough for having. LTNs that it's already done. Um, So, uh, yeah, the research found that implementation in Hackney was very equitable um, and that the most deprived half of London areas were 18% more likely to live in an LTN. Uh, Enfield, I think it was, uh, those LTNs focused on the most affluent, one of the most affluent areas of the borough. And they said that was because people in that area had been talking about they wanted these kind of schemes and that way of implementing stuff. Like, so local people who've got the, I guess, the social, what what do you call it? The social capital to be able to call for these schemes tend to be better off, tend to have more spare time. And so that will kind of skew towards uh, the better off people. So. Um, I think they're going to introduce more uh, schemes. And of course, they did a really good cycle route, which they say is going to sort of link in with LTNs as they go forward.
4: Um, And it is it it is difficult because the the narrative that we keep talking about week on week on week, that's that's really polarizing um, does sometimes start to lean towards. Well, you know, we should we should listen to residents, and and every LTN should have a you know a referendum because they've worked brilliantly, um, and and uh, if people like it, they should get them, and and as we've seen in 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 Enfield, perhaps is the ones that yeah the ones that are most likely to say. Yes, it doesn't necessarily um, do the do the purpose and the the job of the LTNs can do, um, and I, I'd also say it's um, so. I think that's dangerous because as, as this narrative continues to become more polarised, there is a there is a, um, a chance that that councils will potentially take the easy option inverted commas where they're going to get the least amount of aggro, and that's not good for the equity of our transport system. And ultimately, that's how we ended up in this problem in the first place, where um, you know people uh, from wealthy neighbourhoods neighbourhoods can drive where they like and have, have uh, access to, to uh, all forms of transport.
3: I was just going to say, I don't think it's that, that there's more support among people who, uh, who've got more money. I think it's more that um, they're more likely to sort of call for these measures in the first place. They're more likely to have the confidence and the time to, um, and the contact to call for these measures. So um, that's what yeah, you meant by when point. you
2: used the phrase social capital, isn't it? I think,
3: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That kind of being exactly. tuned into the mechanisms to get these things done and actually being, exactly. a, you know, in, engaged with it. I suppose with the mm. process. I mean, most
4: people wouldn't write to their local council. It would be a totally nuts yeah. thing to do. Like before, I started doing this. You know, I I wrote to my local council to request a new wheelie bin, and that was like the first time I'd ever engaged with my local council. So <laughs> yeah, they you know, get wheelie bins. Normal.
3: Dog, I did dog mess, parking, basically. That's what you get as a counsellor.
2: I did that. I, I, I did that just the other day, actually. I re- wrote to my council for the first time in my life, Adam, requesting a new wheelie bin.
3: Because
2: <laughs> mine might have been nicked. Classic. Who nicks wheelie bins, by the way? It's really weird, isn't it? Who does it? that? Um, um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Uh, so my question was about, does... Uh, there's a comment I think, Adam, you made um, as a result of the, the research into LTNs that car ownership amongst Londoners uh, tends to reflect uh, socioeconomic circumstances of households. In other words, the, the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to have a car, but, um, which I'm sure is true. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been um, found to be the case in the, in the report. But on the other hand, is there any information about generational shifting like that? So um, if you use the, the uh, age. As a, as the determining factor, uh, is there is there evidence emerging that younger people are less likely to than uh, at my generation was, um, perhaps before to own a car in London?
4: Yes, yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, that's that's clear as clear as day. Londoners are becoming young. Londoners are becoming less and less likely to to own a car, um, and I think the most popular is that Londoners in their in their seventies who were you know grew up in the the heyday of the the the, the motor car who um, not only own more cars, use more cars, uh, etc. And of course, that fits also into a certain voting demographic and it also fits into a certain demographic of the kind of people who would write into their council other than to request a, a wheelie bin potentially with a bit more time on their hands and that's also reflected in who local councillors are actually as well. There are a lot of uh, I don't have the data in front of me but a lot of local councillors are 50s in their 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, mm. So all of that uh, is lending itself to um, to, to, to potentially uh, the, those who stand most to benefit from increased active travel measures as having mm. the least amount of uh, say in, in that.
3: Yeah, and there's two sides to the um, the kind of income and, and transport issue in terms of uh, air pollution and road danger. And if you're on a low income, you're more likely to live somewhere that's got dangerous roads, poor provision for walking and cycling and high levels of air pollution, which of course have kind of lifelong impacts on, on you. There was this really weird thing as well that you know, prior
2: to this report being published, and I'm sure is still out there, this theory or this argument perpetuated that somehow um, these LTNs being placed where they are is driving up house prices. And it's actually just to the benefit mm-hmm. of the people, you know, which um, which yeah. is, a, is a really kind of tricky one to try and get your head round because in effect- they probably do, but because uh, as we, you know, over over the long term, because that's what we were talking about recently, wasn't it? These um, legacy LTNs that were put in decades ago sometimes. I would imagine the houses on those streets are probably a little bit more expensive than, than they would otherwise be if that LTN hadn't been put in there. So there, there must, there's some truth in that as well, isn't there?
3: Yeah, I think there's a couple in kind of outer... Um london in the kind of suburban areas and they're not particularly um wealthy areas there's one in leicester that's quite old and that's in an area that hasn't really gentrified but that's kind of leicester's a different a different thing and they've got kind of different um different demographics different population and different kind of changing patterns but um yeah i think yeah it's a tricky one isn't it because um any improvement to the street especially in in sort of cities where uh at a premium house prices are going up rental prices are going up Anything that kind of improves the area is going to cause concern for people on low incomes or people who are renting and don't want their prices to go up.
4: Also, in in London, especially where this data was this I say data, this analysis d- was done um, about house prices. One, house prices aren't a good indicator of of social deprivation because um, you know the, the data isn't super accurate, and also people could be renting, for example, a, mm. a house that's that's worth a uh, worth a lot of money. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that those people are are benefiting. And also, I used to live exactly. in Fulham, and I used to live in a kind of what I would call a normal flat. In in Fulham, like built in the 70s or 80s. And behind me, there was a, you know, two big uh, council tower blocks. And in front of me, there were, you know, £5 million mansions on the on the King's Road and and all within probably the same, same area, sorry, the same square, um, you know, mileage or assessment. Um, so it's really, really, I think... Um, Quite a blunt instrument to look at look at house prices and say, "Oh, that's who's 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 benefiting." Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's a disappointing one, I think.
2: Yeah, I often think that is quite a unique London story, isn't it? That way that the housing market yeah. is kind of structured and uh, d- dysfunctional. Um, um, but on the other hand, it's kind of quite interesting about London. I've always felt that you know that it's not it's not so clearly segregated in some ways and in other ways it is deeply um um ltn news though um while we wait for katie to join the call um it'd be a shame if we didn't use the jingle because adam i think there is some more i mean we've just done a bit of ltn news but there's a (laughs) bit more data that's just emerged so maybe we could have the jingle and you can bring us up to date
4: there is breaking ltn news Live from the Streets Ahead Newsroom, it's LTF. Um, so uh, Claire Holland, who's the cabinet member for uh, for Lambeth, um, responsible for transport, has revealed the data from the monitoring of the Railton low-traffic neighbourhood in South London, um, showing that car traffic down is 31% across the area, HGVs are down 30- 23% across the area, and cycling is up uh, 32% across the area and up 51% within the low-traffic neighbourhood. And, and uh, a lot of discussion is always around what happens to the roads and the boundary roads and the traffic around boundary roads is also showing uh, that to be down as well so uh, Loughford junction uh, is down 7% brooks and of cold harbor lane is down 10% so it's showing that the ltn is doing uh, pretty much what it's what it's supposed to do
2: Lambeth has been one of those boroughs that's been particularly uh, behind the LTN scheme and um, has also attracted some of the most fierce criticism as well. So that kind of seems to be part of the parcel. Um, I'm very pleased to say though, our guest has uh, logged in and signed up and joined us. Hello, Katie. Uh, my name's Ned. Nice, Hi, nice lovely to, nice 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 to, nice to meet you. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank Hi. you. Thank you for taking the time. Adam and Laura, I guess you know much better than me. We're meeting for the first time. Um, just to introduce, and um, this time we're talking about pave the way, an influential report uh, by a Disabled Transport Charity by the name of Transport for All, and that's why we're talking to Katie about the impact of emergency active travel measures uh, on disabled people, and very importantly, the improvements uh, that are needed. So, um, Katie Pennick, this is um, this is our kind of second consecutive episode where we tried, as three non-disabled people, to get our heads around this incredibly important uh, subject that you know. By ourselves and other people seems to be permanently overlooked in the discussion. Um, Last in the last episode, we spoke to um, I'm sure someone you know extremely well, Isabel Clement, uh, who was incredibly enlightening in all sorts of ways. But I think she's great. She is great. The conversation we had with Isabel was partly predicated on the work that um, you had done prior to that. Um, So. Uh, I, I guess tell us what it was in the first place this study katie
1: those are very big shoes to fill i am um, big fan of isabel clement she is absolutely brilliant um and great that you've got a chance to speak to her as well um so just to yeah reiterate i'm katie i'm from transport for all which is a disabled people's organization that campaigns for accessible public transport and inclusive street design um and we're a membership organization so we have um 400 members with pan impairment so we represent the interests of of disabled people from all the impairment groups. So not just uh, wheelchair users like myself, uh, but blind visually impaired people, deaf and hard of hearing people, neurodivergent people, uh, everyone. Um, And we we're sort of alerted to this. I mean, we, we've done a lot of work on street space issues in the past. Um, we've sort of done campaigning for uh, more dropped curbs, for instance, on pavements. We've campaigned against street clutter. We've done a lot of work with um, micromobility um, and kind of dockless bikes and e-scooters. Um, it's sort of been all kind of ticking along in the background, but nothing we have done has ever gotten a huge deal of traction um but low traffic neighborhoods came along and has really just lit the conversation on fire um as i'm sure you're all aware of for some reason low traffic neighborhoods is 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 a i don't know what it is it's it's um it's explosive isn't it it's got (laughs) everyone talking about it um and it has been Heated, shall we say? Um, incredibly controversial at points. Um, the conversation, especially online, is incredibly polarized. People do feel very passionate about it, um, and I think at least a good thing about all of this is that it has shone a light on this issue about who our streets are for, um, and that's something that we have been sort of talking about for all of this time and and advocating for improved accessibility um, in in our street space. Um, on the low traffic neighbourhoods front, and, and the the reason that we did this research, uh, it started about in June last year, um, that we started getting a lot of inquiries, a lot of comments, a lot of questions from our members and from um, the wider disabled community about these new schemes that were being introduced, um, all by kind of different names. It was like healthy streets, people friendly streets, or all, all of these kind of um, pseudonyms, and there was just a great deal of concern, a great deal of anxiety. From a lot of disabled people living in various areas, that changes were being made um, very suddenly, um, very quickly, and without uh, asking beforehand, I think was the key difference. Um, And we looked into this, we started looking into a few kind of target boroughs. Um, Initially, we looked at Lambeth and uh, Tower Hamlets and Islington. And we found that this was kind of a pattern was emerging, uh, that disabled people were feeling very concerned that um, these changes were being made. And what we found was that the usual level of consultation um, and engagement that we would usually expect to see when changes like this were being made weren't happening at all, Um, that equality and impact assessments uh, were often not being done or where they were being done, weren't being written by people who had the sort of level of expertise and knowledge about accessibility that we we would kind of like to expect. Um, So it was really kind of a splatter gun approach that changes were being made a bit haphazardly and, and so the impacts were really greatly felt. Um, which is what prompted this research um we we looked into this um we conducted this huge large scale study qualitative study we spoke to um we recruited 84 um disabled people um disabled people including um some um carers slash parents of disabled people um from all across london i think we spoke to um people in 20 In nineteen out of the twenty-one boroughs where new low-traffic neighbourhoods had been put in, um, a whole range of ages, we spoke to people age eight to eighty-nine from across the impairment groups um, to to really uh, find out how they felt about these changes. Um, And so. The response was you got a really kind of good
3: um, range of different needs and different impairments, didn't you? And you got, you got some really interesting uh, case studies to kind of illustrate some of the issues that people were having with these, with these schemes. And some of them were quite kind of simple tweaks, like it's about something as simple as moving a planter that was in the way of a drop curb. Um, but um, of course, there's kind of longer term issues as well.
1: Yeah, so I think to to zoom out a bit from kind of the the details, um, we found a real range of opinion. Um, I think one of the very frustrating things that has happened about uh, in the way in which low traffic neighbourhoods have been talked about is because it's so polarised. We it's sort of like a zero sum game. You know, you're either for them all or you're against them all, which is um, quite reductive and not really how it works. And um, actually, we found that disabled people really held a real range of views on this. Um, There were people who reported real positive impacts and there were people who reported really negative impacts. Um, um, And that's kind of a point about disabled people. You know, we're not a homogenous group. (laughs) We're not all the same person having exactly the same experience. Um, But I think common to quite a lot of people's experience was frustration at the way in which often disabled people and disability and our needs, um, have, be- have been used a bit as a bit of a political point scorer by people on both sides of the argument. So we hear a lot of, um, kind of concerned individuals saying, what about these disabled people? You know, how are they going to get around? Um, which is very frustrating. Um, but we also hear, um, sort of people who are very, um, advocating for low traffic neighborhoods saying these are fantastic for disabled people because they can roll their wheelchair down the middle of the street. Um, and that's wonderful. And it, you know, it always just goes back to, okay, why don't you just ask us? Why don't you just ask us for our opinion? And we we can give you that. Um, and so that was kind of the core of this research. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of positive views and um, positive impacts of low traffic neighborhoods, there were There were loads of them. Um, So, for people, particularly those living inside a low-traffic neighborhood, um, they experienced a reduction in traffic um, in vehicles on the roads um, and the associated benefits of that. So, less traffic meant that the streets were quieter, which means there was less noise, which meant there was less sensory overload, which was particularly welcomed by people um, who were neurodivergent. it led to often more pleasant, uh, more safer journeys. Um, there was a wonderful story of a, of a man I spoke to who, um, was a parent of a young primary school aged child, uh, who was visually impaired. And he was saying, you know, we his son is around about the age now where he wants to start walking to school by himself. Um, his older brother is doing it, all his mates are doing it. But, at that time, they, uh, as parents, they just felt that it really wasn't safe for him to walk to school, um, because he's visually impaired. Uh, that there's an added layer, kind of a danger there of, of not being able to see when the cars are coming, feeling safe crossing the roads. And you know, he was saying with the low traffic neighbourhood going in. I actually feel safe. I feel comfortable allowing my child to walk to school. That's freedom and independence that he has that he wouldn't otherwise have, um, which was a really kind of wonderful story to hear from him. It was really interesting speaking to him saying, he said, people expect me to be against these schemes because of my visually impaired son. And it is that kind of, um, yeah, that expectation that actually isn't the case. Um, uh, in a lot of instances, low traffic neighborhoods were encouraging some disabled people to to do more active travel journeys. So to walk more, to cycle more. Um, people who were cycling and walking more reported a huge increase to their physical health, to their mental health, you know, all of the kind of um the benefits that you were kind of wanted to see from low traffic neighborhoods, uh, which was all great and really great to see. Um, however, I think the key element to this was is that these benefits couldn't unfortunately be enjoyed by everyone um, because there were a huge number of disabled people that we talked to um, who faced kind of additional barriers uh, to active travel. Um, who weren't able to access these benefits and who also on top of that were negatively impacted. Um, so for people who rely on the car as pretty much their only the, the only form of transport that is available to them, these are the people who are very disproportionately impacted. Um, And these people reported an increase in their journey time. And that's, you know, that's, um, understandable to see, you know, low traffic neighborhoods are meant to inconvenience, um, driving, um, and are meant to make, um, short car journeys longer. Um, But for these people, you know, um, longer longer journeys in the car were more exhausting. In some instances, there was worsening of impairments, particularly if you're sitting down for a longer time. Um, Longer time spent in the car was um, more expensive, more money spent on petrol, more money spent on taxi fares. Um, You know, I heard from uh, someone who is on Universal Credit who was saying, it really isn't a case of, oh, it's only 10 minutes more in the car you know you that's fine i have to, I'm, you know counting pennies and i i just simply cannot afford that much more in petrol and it's now got to a stage where i'm i'm having to make extremely difficult decisions based on which trips i now do um There were implications for carers, um, particularly people who were kind of providing care and support for multiple people um, across London. You know, this doesn't happen just in one borough, but people making trips from place to place who have to use the car, who were facing longer journeys, which meant that was actually less time spent with their client. Uh, So disabled people actually receiving less care. and this is obviously being compounded by the the impact of COVID, um, which is a, <laughs> a huge topic in itself. But um, you know, COVID has really hugely impacted disabled people and access to kind of help and and care in that way as well. So these were huge, huge, huge negatives. And I think it it's really difficult to have conversations about low traffic neighbourhoods and zoom in to the details of you know, the, the minutiae of, of which bolas a place to wear, because for us certainly it's actually about zooming out and it's about looking at low traffic neighborhoods in the context of what is really an increasingly inaccessible and hostile transport system. And I talked about these group of people um, who don't have access to the benefits of low traffic neighborhoods. These are the people who, you know, we're really, we're really concerned about because, um, they don't feel the impact of low traffic neighbourhoods, um, and they don't have access to other forms of transport. You know, in London, only um, eighty-one out of the two hundred and seventy uh, tube stations have some degree of step-free access. I say step-free. That's what TfL says step-free, but actually, in half of those stations, there is still a step to get onto the train. You know, it's step-free is only down to the platform, but then there is a step to get on the train. You have to get a manual boarding ramp out. And then there's issues there with sometimes um, the staff uh, don't have the key to the ramp or the staff, uh, there's miscommunication. They don't meet you off the other side with a ramp. Um, so we're talking a handful of tube stations, which are kind of independently accessible. Um, there are problems with buses uh, when ramps fall, uh, fail, uh, when the uh, buses are full, when buggies are in the priority spaces. And. Um, And and again, you know, talking about the streets as well, the streets are incredibly inaccessible. Uh, There's a huge problem with street clutter, with the lack of drop curbs, um, with A-boards. This is being exacerbated by COVID and the kind of social distancing measures. Um, And then (laughs) beyond the kind of infrastructure um, barriers to transport, there's also you know, the even broader uh, societal um, barriers as well. Um, So for someone who wants to take up cycling, um, who's a disabled cyclist, there are huge barriers there. Financial, the financial, uh, Handcycle adapted hand cycles um, and trikes and cargo bikes, especially ones that have power-assisted steering, are incredibly expensive. Um, a lot of disabled people don't know about this option, aren't aware that they are able to cycle, that this is an option for them. Um, there is a huge amount of stigma towards using a mobility aid. So for people who have mobility impairments, but who are ambulatory, so can walk a bit, um, there is a real kind of people are really off put by using wheelchairs because of the sti- stigma, because you do face harassment and you do face, um, you know, stares when you're out and about. And um, so people would rather walk a bit and get in their car. And that's completely understandable. Um, so I've kind of touched on a billion different things there. I feel really like I'm just rambled on, but um, it is a, it's a collection of um, a huge wide range of factors, um, which is why the conversation is so huge. Well,
2: Katie, what would be um, the most um, straightforward and uh, acceptable solution to this quite intractable problem that you've outlined about uh, car usage? For people who need the car, I mean, I've got a, I've got a friend who lives in Manchester who I've been thinking about while you've been talking. Who um, gets around in a power chair and absolutely uh, d- drives this great big adapted, very expensive van as well that hoists him up into the back and slides the chair into the driving position, and then he's got an adapted kind of console. So this is expensive, big kit, but it's absolutely fundamental to his life and getting around and all this sort of thing, as you've described. Uh, if I'm sort of placing him in an LTN now, and uh, wondering whether or not um, there's a, a solution to that to that problem, I guess in a in an ideal world, the barriers, the modal filters, would be smart enough to recognise when his car is coming and going, and to give him a pass. Mm. Right? Would that be the best way of approaching it?
1: Well, that, I mean, that that solution already exists. And certainly we've seen that rolled out, I think, in Sutton and Ealing. So that's a, using ANPR camera technology that would re- be able to recognize the registration number of vehicles and allow uh, the people who need it to drive through the barriers. Um, so this isn't just for disabled people, but this is also for um, school transport, for example. Um, so there is that technology that exists. Um, certainly what we would advocate for is um, the... de-pairing of blue badges with impairment. Um, Because usually when things like this happen, um, often dispensation is offered to blue badge holders. Um, But out of the people that we spoke to, only about half of our participants actually had a blue badge. And something that came up time and time again in our conversations, and also something that we're intimately familiar with with the rest of the work that we do, is that disabled people really struggle getting blue badges. The eligibility criteria is still very narrow. The application process is difficult, um, especially for people with invisible impairments or fluctuating impairments. Um, There are so many issues around that. So we wouldn't want to see a sort of like easy, okay, blue badges can drive through the barriers, job done. Um, It's a little bit more complicated than that um, to ensure that everyone who needs that uh dispensation has it um also you know some of these barriers um depending on the schemes aren't aren't removable i mean you can't you can't move a planter um whoever's driving through uh which is more difficult um i don't obviously every every scheme is very different um and on a local level every street is very different Um, so it really i mean it, the, the um, there's no one size fits all solution what we are advocating for is um better engagement with disabled people and disabled residents um so obviously these schemes have been put in with no consultation um prior to that usually what would happen is you had some degree of consultation you know you had an open public consultation where a council would demonstrate their plans and pub- public the members of the public could comment on it what we're advocating for is a kind of move towards a far more uh, co-produced model of of, make, of designing schemes. The idea of starting out with a blank canvas, the acknowledgement that you don't know what is what will work for disabled people, um, and in inviting disabled experts to contribute and help shape these schemes and draw up plans in such a way that will actually benefit them. The most people and and not not exclude people
4: and would you say that councils are listening since the report has come out have you noticed any you know olive branches being you know we got it wrong we're going to do better because i think i think everybody can probably agree that uh, the consultation process has been suboptimal for um for everybody and i think that's one of the big realizations of uh, of of these schemes you've got to take people even even away from the kind of critical need to, to consult uh, in relation to people's accessibility, you have to bring people along on a journey with you anyway, because you need to explain why you're doing this, how the status quo is unacceptable, all of these things. And that, that's not been done very well. So have you noticed any change since the report's been released?
1: yeah a huge amount of change and um, i mean we're absolutely chuffed with the impact that right. our work has had um it's it's really wonderful to see uh, the way in which this has been picked up um yeah a lot of things have happened um obviously in a moment of serendipity uh, about 2 days before we published our report obviously we got the high court ruling um which essentially said all of the same things that we put in our conclusion so we that was uh, useful in terms of um, getting people to notice um, but yeah in terms of the, on the engagement issue I think I completely agree like no one is I don't think anyone looks back at the past year and looks at how the schemes were put in and, and thinks yeah, that was great. That was really, really good. Um, I think that we are obviously aware of the huge constraints that everyone has been working under. Um, and we have heard from a, a huge number of uh, local authorities who've got in touch to say, we totally understand that uh, the way things that were done is not the best way to get people on board. And we want to we want to do better moving forward. We're really keen to... Um, to understand the ways in which we can design schemes that will not just ex- not exclude disabled people, but actually benefit disabled people. Um, and we are now working or in the process of kind of drawing up plans for partnerships with a whole range of local authorities um, across the UK, which is really good to see. Um, in terms of TFL's response, um, we uh that that is a, an ongoing conversation um we i think we're waiting for their sort of like official uh response to what we have suggested um i think that will be coming out in the next uh week or so but um i know that they are working on redoing their guidance to uh, boroughs for kind of implementing new schemes going forward um and uh, yeah, yeah, I think just the, the the biggest thing we want to see is, you know, the w- w- this is something that we kept talking about in our report. What we had before wasn't good enough either. So we're not, we don't want things to go back to the way they were before. Um, we want things to go forward. We want to see change. We want to see things progress. Um, and at the heart of that is, is, um, is engaging with disabled people. And, um, this idea of starting out with a blank canvas, I think is really important. Um, so often speaking from my own kind of lived experience here, so often I'm invited to give my views on, on a scheme, on a proposed change to something. Um, and it's, it's really frustrating when you kind of get invited to give your view on something and you realize that that decision has already been made. And at the point at which you've been brought in to comment, you were really effectively commenting on the window dressing at that point. All of the big decisions have been made and you're kind of commenting on the color of it or something, um, which is really, really hard because accessibility really isn't something that can be tacked on at the end. It just doesn't work like that. Um, something that we is really fundamental to us is the idea that accessibility is as important as any of those other huge big ticket things, sustainability, health and safety, um, all of you know, all of these things, these are decisions that are made at the beginning. You can't make them in retrospect. Um, so anytime a decision is being made, accessibility needs to be talked about. At the very first instance,
2: well, I think that's incredibly important what you've just suggested as a as a corrective to everything that's um that's gone on. I just I, when you said you know that, that none of us could look back and think well I'm that went well <laughs> um I think you've got a very good point, and I completely take it on board that you know accessibility has to come at the front end of all these processes. I think the only just playing the devil's advocate. Normally, I'm casting the other role, and I'm I'm the one playing the devil's advocate and criticizing LTNs uh, quite strongly on this podcast. But actually, in support of LTNs, and however poorly they've been executed um, thus far, not all of them, of course, there's been some big positives. I think that I suppose I've been impressed. How can I express this? I suppose I've been impressed by um, the call to action that came very quickly and very suddenly, and was, if you like, a little bit autocratic, a little bit handed down, um, that has excluded precisely um, your considerations, Katie. I take that on board, absolutely. But I think if we are scratching around and looking for positives in the way these LTNs have been executed, then the speed and the urgency and the realisation that something has to give uh, was one of the plus points of the implementation thus far. I guess I'm just, I'm just, you know, learning now and I'm, I know it's kind of a real structural error that you weren't absolutely sort of first, uh, you know, uppermost in that process. But do you see some merit in what I'm getting at? That things were moving at a, a prior to this um, urgency, things I guess were moving for all of us, um, both the non-disabled and the disabled community at a kind of glacial pace. And at least the glacial pace appears to have melted somewhat, if that isn't a rather unfortunate kind of climate change metaphor that I've got myself involved in there.
1: I think it's an interesting question. Um, but is that, is that a good thing though? If things move so quickly, um, but in a way that has excluded so many people, it, so what you end up with is something that can't be kept in its current format. I think I hear a great deal from people who are pro LTN. Again, I hate this idea of pro and anti, but that's the best. <laughs> Those are the best words we've got. I hear from um, people who are advocates of low traffic neighborhoods um, who, because, you know, these are not a new idea. <laughs> this is not a new Scheme. These things have existed for decades, um, and who've kind of been campaigning for these uh, for these kind of schemes uh, to be implemented for so long. Who are really upset at the way in which things have been done because because of the backlash. And you know, you have situations where low traffic neighbourhoods have been put in suddenly and haphazardly, excluded a huge amount of people have given rise to a huge amount of backlash, have given political people (laughs) um, ammunition to to campaign against them, and then they just end up being ripped out. And then you end up back where you were. Um, And that's a real shame. And that feels like not a step forward. In terms of acting with haste, um, I don't see any reason why you can't act with haste, but also mindful of accessibility. Um, I, I just, I don't understand why, um, accessibility was left out of the conversation. maybe I will never understand that. Um, I don't understand why, uh, disabled people are not taken into consideration, um, why we have to, why, why we even have to have this conversation. I don't understand why my job exists, to be honest. I don't understand why I spend my life um, banging on people's doors and, and telling people, remember that disabled people exist and you can't discriminate against them. Um, I, to me, the whole thing is quite absurd. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think I'll ever understand that, but, um, you know, I'm doing my best. <laughs> I think it's a very fair yeah. point,
2: very powerfully put as well. I'll take that on board.
3: Yeah. It is it is absurd the um that today in 2021 and it doesn't matter what transport mode you look at and is something that you alluded to earlier Katie. No matter what transport mode you look at and almost regardless of impairment it's just there's barriers everywhere aren't there? If you have some sort of impairment and you just think the Equality Act was tw- what was it 2010 uh, and and that was such a long time ago and there was a long lead up to that and still nothing you know very little has changed there's sort of pockets of good practice but but it's just it seems to be across the board and, and maybe one good thing that ltns have, have brought is is the sort of controversy that's created an awareness that's given your kind of um your report a bit more traction than you said previous reports haven't haven't sort of got the traction you would have liked, So I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that controversy, as horrible as it's been for people with disabilities, um, has you know. Maybe I, can, I don't know. My my hope might be that this that this would propel this this situation, which has been very difficult for some people. One good thing that might come out of it is it might propel this agenda into a sort of more of the public consciousness that this is such an issue for anyone with an impairment.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a another really interesting question. I mean, um, you mentioned the Equality Act there, which, you're right, came into effect in 2010. Before that, we had the Disability Discrimination Act, which um, came in in 1995, the year I was born. Um, so that we celebrated the kind of 25 anniversary of the DDA um, at the end of last year, and there were a great deal of conversations being had about how how things have progressed. Do we think things have gotten better for disabled people in this country? You know, what, what is the current state of play? And it's it's hard for me to comment um, as someone who <laughs> thankfully has grown up in a world where we at least have a baseline level of, of um, accessibility. I mean, we have legislation. Uh, I think we at least have the awareness that it's something that we need to be working towards but the progress is really, really slow, really slow. And I think, I don't know whether things are changing. It's it's hard for me to kind of step out of the, the work that I do and um, I'm so involved in it to actually understand, to kind of sense check where we are at. Um, we, we, so I don't know whether you'll have heard of this, but something that we is really important to the disabled community is the social model of disability. It's the idea that you are disabled not by anything to do with you or your body, you're disabled by the barriers that exist in society. Um, when I can't get on a train, the issue isn't because I can't walk and I use the wheelchair, the issue is there aren't ramps. And that is a socially constructed problem we have built that we that's a man-made problem we have essentially created that train station to exist with no ramps and just as we have built that we can change that and make it better and when that problem shifts from the individual to the community it kind of it it puts in it it really lays bare the idea that we have a social responsibility to remove these barriers, um, that it's a process, it's, a, it's an active process. We are actively disabling people, we are actively excluding people um, from accessing society, from equality, from equity. And I think it's really important um, to consider this when talking about active travel and when talking about any kind of environmental initiative as well. There, I think, exists quite a historic um, tension, shall we say, between the climate justice movement and the disability justice movement. I think sometimes um, environmental initiatives have been kind of discussed or implemented that have been seen to exclude or further discriminate against disabled people. I'm thinking about things like the plastic straw ban and things like this. Um, and I think it's so important for the movements to work together. Um, and when, you know, disabled people want to walk, wheel and cycle, we, you know, we want to make more active travel journeys. Um, and, you know, to, zooming out to think about the, the environmental impact of this, you know, disabled people are, um, are will be among the worst hit by the effects of climate change. Um, and, it, you know, that's especially true for things like air quality and pollution, especially when you think about people who have respiratory diseases. So it, it's really important to include disabled people in the environmental movement and to sort of bring disabled people along. Um In within active travel. And that's why it's so important to think about it in social model thinking, to think about the barriers that exist and what we can all do to remove these barriers. And low-traffic neighbourhoods offer... Such a good opportunity to have those conversations and think about who we're taking along with that and who we're further excluding. Well,
4: what you said, Katie, really resonates with um, just some of the, the the basic experience I have working with with local authorities. And, and you know, recently I did a a walk around uh, near where, where I live and, and looked at some redevelopments they were doing, and just just sort of going. Like there's no, and I'm not an expert, but like there's no drop curb there. Like for example, and and now there's going to be a drop curb there, which is like is you know great news in, the, in in a small scheme of things. But I ex I suspect that the low traffic neighbourhood discussion, and obviously it's been quite uh, high profile and polarizing, is purely the tip of the iceberg of what I think is probably in councils a. a, a general kind of not not I don't think anyone's purposefully, you know, maybe by their own actions and and they are being discriminatory. But, you know, councils have uh, a certain skill set and I see it in planning all the time. You know, they they think about like like traffic flow and they think about certain things and they're very good at that. But that that change that thinking has changed over the last 30, 40, 40 years and they've not changed uh with it. So I suspect that councils probably are brilliant at all forms of transport when it comes to accessibility, which, which I think is 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 um, is, is kind of something that you, um, uh, you you mentioned like with the tube stations, for example. I know that's not a council thing; that's a TfL thing. But generally, wherever we go, it's 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 it's. Um, it's fairly poor. And I think hopefully, hopefully that this, the the raising of the profile of, uh, of this issue relating to low traffic neighborhoods will, will disseminate across all forms of transport and all other forms of active travel as well. Because one of the things I talked to um, Isabel from Wheels for Wellbeing a lot about is the, because there's tons near me, is the very literal barriers that are on things like the National Cycling Network, the the kissing gates and things like that. And you just think, how is this stuff like I really can't compute? Like, how did this get hit? How do we get to this point? Yeah. Like, how do we get to this point? And it's so shocking, but then there's no one really talking about it. It's a niche issue. Like I, I spoke to um, some people in wheelchairs near me who I just saw cycling, uh, using a power cycle. Um, and I said, well, do you find this a problem? And and they were sort of, obviously it's only two people, but they they were kind of like, well, yeah, but we can take the chairs apart if we have to, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, that's not good enough. You know, that's not, how do we get to, you know, how do we get to this point? And there's not really a question there, just other than it's uh, a bit yeah. frustrating. I hope we're getting to a better place.
1: It's, it is, I mean, this is like my entire job <laughs> is, is this question. Um, and it is, it is baffling. It's. It, this is, you know, one of the solutions we kind of proposed in our report is something you could do that would be very productive is in any place where you are putting in new street space initiatives. So whether that is a low traffic neighborhood or whether you're putting in new cycling infrastructure or whether you're widening pavements or whatever it is you're doing to the streets. Okay. Have a look around, do an audit, do an accessibility audit and try and <laughs> remove the barriers that the very many barriers that exist in that area, because you're there already, you'll do it you're making changes to the streets. So, okay, there's a, there's a curb that hasn't been dropped. Asphalt that, you know, remove this, um, kissing gate or whatever it is. Just, you know, those kind of smaller things. Um, because a lot of it is a, the case of these, These decisions have been made in the past. We've ended up with this infrastructure that is inaccessible and unusable for disabled people. And I understand that that is the result of disabled people not being visible and present in decision making in the past. Decisions have already been made. You know, that's certainly true of the Tube, Victorian infrastructure. I'm not for a second saying that it would be easy to install lifts in all of the stations overnight. Um, but it's what we can start doing now that would gradually remove those barriers. And that, that's fine. And that, that you know, that is, that's good. That's productive. That's going in the right direction. What really frustrates me is the things that go in now, new things that get put in that aren't accessible. For me, that's unforgivable. And it's especially true when thinking about these big, expensive Decisions such as acquiring new rolling stock for trains, for example. Um, There's a okay, I won't good names, but there there's a very large and very well used station um, that used to have step free access um, onto their trains. That's step free as in actual level boarding from the platform to the train. Um, They have acquired new rolling stock for their trains. Their trains are now slightly higher. So that's gone from being a step-free level boarding station to needing a ramp. And that is, rolling stock only gets replaced every, what, 30 to 40 years. So we now have a situation where that decision has been made. We've acquired this new rolling stock that has set us up for a legacy of inaccessibility for the next 30, 40 years. To me, that's unforgivable because these are decisions that are happening now and we really should know better. We should at least know to be talking to the right people. I understand that people are not experts in accessibility. No one can be an uh, an expert in absolutely everything, Um, but it's about seeking out the... The experience, the expertise, and the opinions of the people who are going to be dramatically impacted by these changes. Um, when I see cycle, cycling infrastructure being put in, and I see cycling infrastructure which is too narrow for a trike, or with steps into the cycle lane, or I see, um, you know, filters where you have to disembark, that is immediately unusable. For disabled cyclists, unusable. It, you know, it's and it's it's not. I mean, yeah. I suppose you know some some people are able to get off their chair and take apart the chair for a lot of disabled cyclists, they cannot do that. Um, and, you know, these are this is new things going in that aren't going to be replaced for a long time. And it's about this legacy that we're creating, you know, the decisions that are getting made now set us up for decades in the future that we'll still be having the exact same conversations. Um, and, you know, kind of putting my lived experience hat on, speaking from a personal perspective as a as a wheelchair user i can't tell you the impact that has on me as a person on my on my emotional state on my sense of of belonging in this world every time i go to a park and there are steps to get into the park, or if I want to go along uh, the new river walkway to go for a nice walk around um, the wetlands and there suddenly is a load of steps. So I have to go along seven sisters main road instead, or, you know, every time I have to make these small decisions of, of changing the way that I go, because the nice, green walk isn't accessible to me every time I do that, that is sending me the message of essentially you're not welcome here, or you haven't been thought of in, in this. And it really does. It it, it just does make you feel so excluded and so kind of othered and removed from the world. Um, and I think it's no surprise that disabled people Um, feel so completely forgotten about really and completely um, left behind a lot of the time Um, and that's it's a real real shame Uh, you're really sad to see well
2: Katie our time's up I mean thank you so much for coming on and and, um, making these points and they're more than points just calling them points kind of like almost does them a disservice it's a urgent paradigm shift that's required. And, um, you've articulated it brilliantly. Um, I've got, I've got, I've got (laughs) masses to go away and think about. So, um, and I hope everyone, everyone listening, um, to the podcast takes that away as well, because um, you've done your job over the last hour. Thank you very much, uh, Katie. And I know the report as well took you, I, I gather six months of your life to p- put together as well. So thank you for that. It's certainly had an impact and I'm glad you're getting some sort of positive feedback from the stakeholders, you know, and inching it forward. Hopefully it can we can change it from inches to great big giant leaps um, and and change, change the way we're all going about things.
1: The the biggest thing is that this is a, this is an open conversation. Yeah. This is a dialogue. And I think I, I certainly, from my perspective, anyway, the conversation is, all, is has been so polarized and so heated and, and quite nasty at some points. And I, I, I really hope I want to bridge that gap a bit more. And I understand that there is a lot of learning and a lot of understanding that needs to happen. Um, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm hopeful that the conversation kind of can move on in a more, in a more productive way. Um, but thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to speak to you all.
2: Well, there we go. Do let us know what you think. I say this every time, um, using the, the handle at podstreetsahead. Rate us and review us and spread the word as well. Share the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And, uh, we'll see you all next time.
3: Bye.
0: Bye.